the sensory attributes of food, the part that you sense with your tongue and your nose, this is important information. And if you start to screw around with this information, you really mess things up. You mess up how your brain relates to food. And this is what's making us eat too much. Dr. Schatzker, you've had time to think about my symptoms. I have delusions. I have diarrhea. I have scaly skin sores. And I eat a lot of bread. I'm never hungry. I work on a farm in early 20th century Italy. What is it that you think I have? What you have in the dialect of the village that we're in is very simply called rough skin. And you're probably saying, well, yeah, I just told you I had rough skin. So you're telling me that's what I have is rough skin. That word is pellagra. And that is, in fact, a well-known disease. And this was an epidemic that essentially took over northern Italy starting around the 1700s. And it was an epidemic. And like you say, it struck farmers. It started with that skin scale kind of thing. And it would progress from there and progress ultimately to delirium, delusions, diarrhea, and death. And nobody had any idea what caused it. There was all sorts of bizarre theories. They thought it might have to do with spores that get into the blood and then ignite. Just the most wacky, bizarre theories that you can imagine that people had back then when we really didn't know an awful lot about science or medicine. The interesting thing is that pellagra somehow crossed the ocean and appeared in Georgia. I think it was 1904. And it became an epidemic there. It spread into different villages and then different states. And again, no one knew what caused it. It's very much like our epidemic of obesity in that there was all these sort of trendy theories and these scientists standing behind them. Some people thought it was an infectious disease. Some people thought it had to do with if you live too far or too close to water. Some people were sure it was spread by like a bacterium. And some said, no, it's mosquitoes. And some said, no, it's sand flies. And they were always bickering and fighting. And finally, there was an epidemiologist who solved it. His name is Joseph Goldberger. And he came to an asylum, I think it was Georgia. And they thought he was nuts because everyone thought it had to do with infection, cleanliness. And he said, don't change the sheets. Don't mop the floors. And he just started feeding the patients things like, let them eat beans. We're going to make them eat beans. We're going to make them drink milk. And people thought, this guy is just a total loon. And he cured it. And what he found was that this was, in fact, caused by diet. And this was a momentous step forward in our understanding of nutrition, because he realized that there was what they called the pellagra preventing factor. There was something in food that was necessary for good health, that food just wasn't sort of food, but it had elements. And we now call these vital elements vitamins. And the vitamin that was missing in these people suffering from pellagra was vitamin B3, or what we call niacin. This utterly changed our understanding of food and nutrition. What's also really interesting is that these two different parts of the world, back then, the north of Italy, very similar to the southern U.S., economically backward, agrarian, suffering from this terrible disease. What's so interesting is if you fast forward the clock a century, they couldn't be more different because the north of Italy is one of the most economically productive parts of Europe, incredibly fashionable, beautiful. This is really the land of Ferraris and Bugattis and high fashion and beautiful villas in Lake Como. This is where, you know, the soccer stars go to hang out and the oligarchs in better times versus the American South, which is still economically backward compared to the rest of the country, high rates of unemployment, low GDP per capita, that sort of thing. But the most interesting thing is if you look at the two areas nutritionally, because the Southern US graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. Back then the problem was pellagra. People were literally starving, not from a lack of calories, but a lack of nutrients. Well, now the problem is overnutrition. It's got the highest rates of obesity in the United States. It was once the pellagra belt. It's now the obesity belt. 
you look at Northern Italy and it could not be more different. This is a land that is obsessed with food. I visited the city of Bologna. They have a repository of recipes. They feel so strongly and so passionately about their food that they have a repository of official recipes for incredibly wonderful foods like tortellini and lasagna. They even have something called a grand frito, which is a meal in which every dish is deep fried. These people love food so much and they have lasagna and a grand frito. Shouldn't these people be rather plump? They eat, I would say, amongst the very best food in the world, and they are astonishingly thin. The rate of obesity is less than 8%. So this is a true mystery, and it's truly fascinating, the history of these two regions, how they were once so similar, and now really couldn't be more different. Wow. Well, thank you. That is exactly the answer I was looking for, doctor. I appreciate it. Why are you interested in writing about food? For people who don't know your work, I would describe you almost as a science writer who writes about the science of food, because you're not a food writer in the sense that you write about recipes. You write about sort of the history of food, the nature of food, and why food is the way it is. How did you get interested in this topic and what interests you about it still? Really just curiosity and hunger, and I guess a blend of the two. It really started for me, I think it was 1997. I was visiting my brother who was living in Chile at the time. And we went out to hang out at the beach one weekend and he bought a tenderloin, a whole beef tenderloin. And Chileans don't like Argentines. So it tells you what they think of their beef when they buy good beef, they buy Argentine beef. That's really saying something. You know, this is kind of rivalry. Not so true anymore. Back then, Argentine beef was insanely good. And I just had one of those moments. We grilled it over coals and I popped that morsel of charred, rare, juicy beef in my mouth and I had one of those, holy crap moments. What's going on? This is insanely good. I asked what I thought was a simple question why is this so good? Basically, because I wanted to repeat it. Like, how can I make sure every steak is this good? And what I found is that every question, kind of like in True Grit, nothing was what it seemed. Everything people told me seemed to be wrong. And there was some kind of truth standing behind it that I couldn't quite get my hand on. And that sort of turned into a book. I traveled the world looking for the best steak because it was weird. You go to a steakhouse and they've got like this biblically thick wine menu and they can tell you this is the grape, this is who made it. This is the region. These are the soils, blah, blah, blah. You're like, okay, so where's the steak from? Like, I don't know. It showed up in a truck. Like they had no idea. <laughs> so this was an attempt to understand beef. But then I start to ask deeper questions. Like, why do we like steak? Why do we like meat? Why do we like what we like? How does the brain process flavor? Is it good for us? How do animals eat? How do animals know what's good for them? And that led to the Dorito effect, which was looking at how the food we eat has changed in terms of flavor, not nutrients, blah, 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 but how has the flavor changed? And that's a very interesting story because all the wholesome food's getting bland and all the junk food is getting more flavorful. That's a problem, I think. The Dorito effect is more than an interesting story. It's an explanation of a lot of the problems that we have as a society, as certainly a lot of the health problems. It's not even really a theory. It's kind of a collection of facts. The Dorito effect is a book, honestly, Mark, that I'm surprised is not in everybody's hands and did not completely change the world. There's still time. Yeah, there's still time. And it may. I've recommended it to hundreds of people. And I've heard back from many people who have read it that it really changed their relationship with food, as it did with me. The end of craving as well. Tell us why it's called the Dorito effect. Because of the story of Doritos and the true story of Doritos and what it tells us about food and ourselves. So what no one knows about Doritos is that the first Doritos, they almost didn't come to exist. There's a guy named Arch West. If you ever watched that show, Mad Men, he could have walked off the set of Mad Men. He was an ad guy in New York City, Madison Avenue. He gets hired to be the VP of sales and marketing for the Frito company, which soon merges with the Lay's chip company to become Frito-Lay. We all know Frito-Lay. So 
early 1960s, he takes his kids on a trip to California. He drives out there. And one day they're driving south towards San Diego. They're staying in Orange County. They're driving south towards San Diego and they pass what his daughter described to me as a little Mexican shack, takes for the first time a tortilla chip. And he just has this vision. This is the next big product for Frito-Lay, a tortilla chip. You kind of might think, well, they already make Fritos, which is a corn chip. Really not that much difference between it, but he thought that's it. He pitches it to the big wigs and they shut it down. They're like, no, we don't agree. So he is so confident in the future of tortilla chips that he takes discretionary funds and he kind of goes to this offsite facility and develops the tortilla chip concept. And he gives them a little name, which means in a sort of bastardized pretend Spanish, little pieces of gold. He brings it back to his executives and he says, gentlemen, I give you Doritos. And he gets the green light. And this is where everyone thinks, okay, now the world's changed, Doritos. No, no, didn't happen. Because the first Doritos were just salted tortilla chips, just salt. Toasted corn flavor was how the packaging had it. And they bombed. Everyone said the complaint was, these chips sound Mexican, they don't taste Mexican. So Arch West has to go and face his fellow bigwigs, this snack that he developed without their permission is bombing. And they're like, what are you gonna do about it? And he said, let's make him taste like taco. And they mocked him. They said, our Yankee friend from the North doesn't know the difference between a thing and a flavor. And it was a great comment because this was a very important turning point in food history because up until then, different things had their own flavors. Strawberries tasted like strawberries, cherries tasted like cherries, roast chicken tasted like roast chicken. And that's the way the world was. And if you wanted to taste those things, you had to get those things. Well, Arch West knew that technology was changing and that because of the invention of something called the gas chromatograph, we could analyze the flavors in food and then we could reproduce them and we could make anything we want taste like whatever we wanted to taste like. So he said, let's make Doritos taste like taco. And that's what they did. They added things like Truly yeast and MSG, but most importantly, flavorings. These are the flavor compounds that light up our brain with this experience of the character nature of food. And they created a chip. Did it taste literally like taco? No, but it just had that depth and that zing and that zestiness. And here's the important thing, this application of flavorings, no extra calories, no salt. It was just these flavor chemicals turned a chip that nobody wanted to eat into a chip that became a bestseller, a chip that has become a fixture in our culture. That is the power of flavor to make us eat. It's such a profound idea. Let's tie that to the end of craving. So why is flavor important to us as humans? The idea that I explored in the Dorito effect was, well, it makes all these foods that we wouldn't normally eat, it would make us eat more of them. So if you think of something like soft drinks, think of 7-Up, Dr. Pepper, Coke, Pepsi, Think of all those. We say, well, they're sugary drinks. They are sugary drinks. We say, well, the sugar is the reason we drink too much of them. People say they're addictive because of the sugar. I don't think that's true because if it was just sugary soda water, I don't think we'd drink any of this stuff. It's the flavoring that makes us drink them. If you think of potato chips, would we eat nearly as many potato chips if not for all the flavorings, if they were just salted potato chips? We'd eat some, certainly. So the idea there was that flavorings are making us eat food we wouldn't eat. And that on its own isn't good. But then I thought, but what's really going on? I mean, why does food have flavor? And what is this doing to our brain? And this is where things got really interesting because the more I looked into the way the brain actually relates to food, the more I found out that the story isn't anything like we think it is. We tend to think that our brain was forged in the Stone Age, that we have this caveman-like appetite for calories, that we would eat ourselves into an early grave if only given that opportunity, and that we therefore must control ourselves 
and we must change food. So we've come up with all these technologies to change food. We add vitamins to it. We have artificial sweeteners and fat replacers and so forth. When you really look into it, you find that the brain possesses a striking intelligence when it comes to food. It is an obsessive measurer. The reason we taste food and we experience taste and flavor, we think of that as a sort of delightful sensation. But to your brain, that part of your brain that eats, it is information. Your brain is gleaning information about the food that it's consuming. There's also a secondary level of analysis and more. There's lots of analysis going on when food hits your stomach. There's nutrient sensors all through your digestive tract. The brain even keeps track of how well metabolized food is, how valuable is the energy that it gave me. So the other thing we find is that the brain is in control of body weight. One of the reasons that diets fail is because after around six or eight months, your brain says, stop you've lost weight. I want you to gain it back because the brain wants you to gain back. So everyone thinks, yeah, the brain wants me to be fat. No, because scientists do overfeeding studies. They put subjects in a laboratory environment and they feed them too much food. And that doesn't work either. Overfeeding is almost as unpleasant as starving. And then when these studies end, the subjects lose the weight. So it's like the brain, it regulates your body weight. It's in control. So we see this picture is nothing like what we're told. The brain is incredibly intelligent and it's the one making the decisions. This deep part of your brain that controls appetite, desire, all that sort of thing. And what I realized, what was the profound insight in the end of craving is that what we think of taste and flavor, the sensory attributes of food, the part that you sense with your tongue and your nose, this is important information And if you start to screw around with this information, you really mess things up. You mess up how your brain relates to food. And this is what's making us eat too much. One of the most important insights and discoveries was that when we look at brain scans of people with obesity, they don't enjoy food too much. This is the knock against them. This is what everyone thinks. They lose themselves in pleasure. They just love to eat. Not true. If anything, their enjoyment of food is blunted. The difference is that they crave food more. When they see that picture of a milkshake, when they smell that pizza, when they hear that burger sizzling, they experience a spike of desire. That is what is similar to drug addiction, is this being a prisoner to your cravings. So the goal of this book became to understand how it is that such an intelligent brain could be turned into such an injured brain, a brain that is grappling with an unnatural level of cravings for food that is literally making people sick. These two books, I will say my little plug for them is that they really have changed the way that I approach food. And I've lost weight, but I've also gotten a lot healthier as a result of thinking about some of the things you talk about in the book. For the listeners who don't know Mark's work, these aren't like diet books. These are books about the science of food. And they're brilliantly told and you're a hilarious writer. But anyway, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, between March and June, I lost about 35 pounds. And I did this with portion control and a ridiculous amount of exercise, like an unhealthy amount of exercise. But what else are you going to do? Because we had nothing else to do. And then we had our second child. Life got a little more stressful. And I methodically gained it all back. And then I read Dorito Effect. I read The End of Craving. And I just changed the way that I approached food. And one of the things that you write about early in The End of Craving is that people who lose a lot of weight, it ends up becoming a lifestyle for them. It becomes something close to a religion, which is what happened to me. And that religion became incompatible with my family life. And I decided that I wanted to continue to have a family instead of ride my bike eight hours a day. But what has been compatible with my life is just trying to taste food and to eat foods that are natural and eat foods that are what they say they are, 
I mean, when I was really actively losing weight, I was losing like three or four pounds a week, which is crazy. I have now in the last four months lost, you know, pound, half pound a week, but I'm scaling down to where my body feels healthy. And I went from being pretty injured and having some back problems to like now I'm healthy and I can run just for the listeners. It's not a diet. It's a way of just looking at food. You're eating real food is what you're doing. Yeah. If anything, the food you eat is better. It's not restrictive. It's more delicious. And that was one of the craziest things is Northern Italy. Japan's another example. I visited Japan. I could not eat a bad meal in Japan to save my life. I was blown away at the food quality. I took a train from Tokyo to Matsuzaka. They were selling fish balls on a train. Now, I live in Canada, but I've spent a lot of time in the States. I would never buy a meal on a train unless I'm starving. Like, my God, would you eat fish on a train? Not to save my life. Yeah, if you wanted to kill yourself. Yeah. And so I bought a fish ball on this train and it was absolutely delicious. There was this two-year-old sitting across from me and he was eating the fish ball. We kind of had this moment where we connected like delicious fish ball. Their commitment to food is similar to Italians that they obsess over the quality of the ingredients. They really value their cultural traditions and they see every meal as an opportunity to enjoy food. And they argue about it and different regions have squabbles about who does this or that better. Their rate of obesity in Japan is less than 5%, and they're eating outstandingly good food. So we're really getting it wrong. What is it in the U.S.? 42%. This was pre-pandemic, 42%. That's not overweight and obesity. That is just obesity. It's almost half. We're not eating good food. Like, it's not particularly tasty. Let's talk about chicken, because I know you know a thing or two about what makes chicken taste good. After I read the Dorito effect, I did actually go try to find a barred rock chicken at my local butcher, and he could not source it for me. He had a place where he thought he could, but they even they couldn't get it. One of my favorite parts of Dorito effect is a man gets married and his wife makes him fried chicken, but she can't quite get it to be like the way that his mother used to make. Why is that? This is a story told by a farmer, and he got a letter from a woman said she spent her whole marriage. Her husband just always complained about the chicken and said, it's not like my mother made. And then finally, she went to a butcher shop or a food store, I think it was called Crables. And there she found this barred rock chicken and she bought it. And she made, I think it was chicken and dumplings, if memory serves. She made it for her husband and he said, you've done it. It tastes like my mother's chicken. And because on a kind of literal sense, it was his mother's chicken, not the recipe, the chicken itself. And it was what we call now an heirloom chicken. So chickens really changed after World War II. There was a contest called the Chicken of Tomorrow Contest, which was a contest in which chicken breeders from around the country competed to raise a faster growing chicken with a bigger breast, kind of more economical. It had better what we call agronomic qualities. And this put chickens on the road to change. So a chicken back then, supermarket chicken might've been around 14, maybe 16 weeks old. Today it's around six weeks old and it's bigger. So they grow at an astonishing rate. Now there's some upsides to that. Chicken's way cheaper than it used to be. And there is literally a chicken in every pot, but I think we've taken it way too far because we said goodbye to flavor a long time ago. So it's really interesting when you look at recipes for chicken, like a cookbook publisher on the second world war, you'd really think these people were just unsophisticated idiots because the recipes, they have salt, pepper, maybe an herb. And you think like, wow, these people had no palates. Like their tongues must've just been anesthetized. Not true. Their ingredients had flavor. And that's the difference. You look at an ingredient for chicken. Now you've got to brine it and then you put a rub on it and then you fry it and then you put a sauce on it and then you blitz it with something. It's amazing the lengths that chefs go to now to make chicken palatable because it is just this sort of substrate. It's a vehicle for carrying flavor. The way a Dorito chip is, it's just this calorie-laden vehicle on which we impose 
flavor. But real chicken has a beautiful flavor on its own, a flavor that I would argue most people haven't really experienced. It's not strong the way like steak is a robust, deep flavor. It's a gentle, warm kind of flavor that kind of like wraps you in an embrace. It's wonderful. I mean, a good piece of meat, a good piece of anything doesn't really need much additional flavoring. No. And it goes so far. People argue we eat too much meat. But the one thing I find when I get these heirloom chickens is you have a meal one night, but then you can take the little bits of it and make like a stew or mix it with lentils or something and make something else the next night. You can really stretch it because it's got so much power behind it. And you eat less of it because it's more nutritious. One of the interesting things I noticed when I moved from New York to Los Angeles was East Coast cuisine is a lot of Italian food, a lot of sauces, a lot of things that are cooked in really creative ways to make them delicious. Very French, French Italian synthesis. And when I moved to Los Angeles, a good restaurant is like, here's some kale that we picked two days ago. Here is a carrot that is in season and was grown a mile away. The food is just much simpler, but it's much more delicious because we're sort of in this bread bowl area. I mean, I go to a farmer's market and because it's Southern California, there's something in season all the time. I can get fresh something all the time. I didn't know that you could eat like that. I remember when I was in New York, if you would ask me 10 years ago, if I liked avocados, I would have said no, because I had never had an avocado that wasn't like 10 days old. And now I have, they're the best. So where can people find real flavor? I think things are improving. We have an agricultural and a kind of a food system where we buy things based on quantity. So it's really no wonder we lost flavor. No one's paying for it. If you pay for something by the pound, then you incentivize a person to produce the most for the cheapest. And that's how our food system works. But I think things are changing. I think craft beer is a great example of where a whole category just changed, like did a 180. Get in a time machine, go to the 1980s and get a bunch of beer executives and say, in the year 2022, there will be all these craft beers. It's driven by a desire for more flavor. Craft beers cost more money and they have much more flavor, much more character. We care about how they're made. We care about the people who made them. There's this idea of craft and expression going into it. You're seeing stuff happen now with whiskeys and gin. Our wine palates improved a lot. I would say our cheese palates improved a lot. And you find things like grass-fed beef is getting more of a toehold. So I'd say be curious, look for it, be willing to pay for it, go to farmer's markets, and reward the companies that are making an effort, care about the quality and realize that if you want to eat better, it's probably going to cost you a little bit more, which is true of anything. If you want to drive a nicer car, if you want to wear nicer clothes, some people often push back on that and say, well, that food's more expensive. And I always say like, I don't know where to buy the cheapest anything except for food. Everybody eats the cheapest food. I don't know who makes the cheapest headphones or the cheapest car, or the cheapest shirt. I don't know the cheapest place in town to get my hair cut. But for some reason, we have this fixation on cheap food. Now, you know, on one level, we want to feed a lot of people. But we also have to recognize this stuff's going in our body. And maybe we want to think about that. Yeah. You're going to pay the farmer or you're going to pay the doctor? Yeah. Great way of putting it. So I did promise the listeners that we were going to talk about the place to get the best steak in the world where we can find real flavor. So let's talk about Matu in Beverly Hills. I'm just going to tell you that I took my friend there on, it wasn't really a recommendation. You just told me that this restaurant existed. I took one of my friends there who's just loves steak. I took him there for his birthday. And I had the experience that I hadn't had since I was in Italy where I couldn't talk while we were eating. It's so delicious and so flavorful. And what's on the menu is just steak grilled the way they grill it and on a plate. There's no A1 sauce. There's no nothing. It's just an amazing cut of meat cooked absolutely perfectly. And it blew both of our minds. We absolutely loved it. So tell us a little bit about that restaurant and a little bit about that beef and your involvement in it. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. That's great. And that's exactly the intent. 
so long ago, I had this twinkle in my eye that maybe one day people will have the same experience. I thought it would happen a lot faster than it did. The State Book came out in 2010. Matu opened July 2021. But I got together with a guy named Jerry Greenberg. He's probably best known for the restaurant in LA called Sugarfish. And we both lovers of steak, both want a really parallel, but very similar steak journey. We've had the Chianina beef in Italy. We loved that. We used to be kind of dry aged strip loin guys. We both became ribeye disciples, both realized grass fed is where it's at. Both gave up on dry aging, said it's actually overrated. And that's not the way to age beef. Jerry put together a really interesting group of people. It's been one of the most satisfying and rewarding experiences of my life was getting together with this group of people and trying to create a restaurant that really values what is important, what I think is important in food. And that is the quality, how it tastes, but also the ethics and the philosophy that goes into raising it. So the beef comes from New Zealand. It is Wagyu. Wagyu cattle, this is the breed from Japan that we think of for like Kobe beef and so forth. It's known for marbling. It also has a very subtle, fine grain to it. There's a softness to the fat and a sweetness to the meat. When it's raised on grass, this is just a flavor and texture combination that it's mind-blowing. It's just incredibly good beef. It's made by a group called First Light. This is a co-op of farmers. So the farmers are part owners of the company. So it really fixes so many of the things that we find difficult about our food system. The farmers are being paid well. They're being paid to treat their cattle well. They're being paid for quality. It's just been so satisfying to be able to bring this for people to have them taste it and enjoy it themselves. And to hear you describe it, it's great. I had no idea that Sugarfish was, I mean, my other favorite place in LA is Sugarfish, obviously. I had no idea that they were related. But when I was there, I said, this kind of feels like a beef version of Sugarfish. The service was the same and sort of the way they're like, we have a menu, but this is what you should get. <laughs> my favorite thing about Sugarfish is that what's on the menu is three versions of omakase, basically. So I have two more questions for you. One is the question that I always close the podcast with, which is to just recommend two books for our listeners to read. Pieces of the Frame by John McPhee. Um, John McPhee's a nonfiction writer. He wrote for The New Yorker. Pieces of the Frame is just an extraordinary piece of writing. He's such a good stylist. And A Brief History of Everything by Bill Bryson is a terrific book. Bryson is an amazing writer. I don't think he gets enough credit because he's so clear and so easy to read that I think people think it's much easier than it is. I think he's an absolutely terrific and underrated writer. Amazing. Thank you. And my last question is really specifically for you and from reading your books. Will you someday have me over for dinner and sacrifice a chicken in my honor? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. <laughs> Excellent. Mark Schatzker raises his own chickens and he writes about them and they sound absolutely delicious and I really want to eat one. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your books. Where can listeners find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I don't spend too much time on either of them, but I'm there. If people ever want to reach out, markshasker.com is the website and read the books. And if you have a question, send it to me. Yep. Links to the books will be in the description. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll hope to have you back when you have another book. Thank you for having me. It's been great. My guest next week is Adwige Danticat. She's a genius. She's a writer. She's a best-selling author. If you're a fan of this show and you're a fan of literature in general, you probably know who she is. She's going to be here talking to us about Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram, also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. 
if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. You're a hilarious writer. There's this one line that every time I think about it, I laugh, which is you talk about how some people say that food is like a drug and you say food is not a drug. Sashimi is not more intense if you snort it, <laughs> which cracks me up every time I hear it. Mm-hmm.